Section 11 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Shestov. Translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotelyansky. Section 11. The Theory of Knowledge. Part 1 the theory of knowledge as apologetics etc the modern theory of knowledge though it always consciously takes its rise from kant has in one respect quite disregarded the master's commandment it is very strange that the theorists of knowledge who usually cannot agree among themselves upon anything have as it were agreed to understand the problem of knowledge quite otherwise than kant kant undertook to investigate our cognitive faculties in order to establish foundations in virtue of which certain existing sciences could be accepted and others rejected one may say that the second purpose was chief hume's scepticism made him uneasy only in theory he knew beforehand that whatever theory of knowledge he might invent mathematics and the natural sciences would remain sciences and metaphysics be rejected in other words his aim was not to justify science but to explain the possibility of its existence and he started from the point of view that no one can seriously doubt the truths of mathematics and natural science but now the position is different the theorists of knowledge direct all their efforts towards justifying scientific knowledge why does scientific knowledge really need justification of course there are cranks sometimes even cranks of genius like our own tolstoy who attack science but their attacks offend no one nor do they cause alarm scientists continue their researches as before the universities flourish discovery follows discovery and the theorists of knowledge themselves do not spend sleepless nights in the endeavor to find new justifications for science yet i repeat though they can come to an understanding about practically nothing else they amaze us by their unanimity upon this point they are all convinced that it is their duty to justify science and exalt her so that the modern theory of knowledge is no longer a science but an apology and its demonstrations are like those of apology once science must be defended it is necessary to begin by praising her that is by selecting evidence and data to show that science fulfills some mission or other but indubitably a very high and important one or on the other hand by painting a picture of the fate that would overtake the world if it was deprived of science thus the apologetic element has begun to play almost as large a part in the theory of knowledge as it has done hitherto in theology perhaps the time is at hand when scientific apologists will be officially recognized as a philosophic discipline but que s'excuses s'accuse it is plain that all is not well with science since she began to justify herself besides apologetics are only apologetics 
and sooner or later the theory of knowledge will be tired of psalms of praise and will demand a more complex and responsible task and a real labor at present the theorists start with the assumption that scientific knowledge is perfect knowledge and therefore the premises upon which it is builded are not subject to criticism the law of causation is not justified because it appears to be the expression of a real relation of things nor even because we have the data at our disposal which could convince us that it does not and will never admit exceptions that uncaused effects are impossible all these things are lacking but we are told they are not needed the chief thing is that the causal law makes science possible while to reject it means to reject science and knowledge generally all anticipation and even as some few hold reason itself clearly if one has to choose between a slightly dubious admission on the one side and the prospect of chaos and insanity on the other there will be no long hesitation apologetics we see has chosen the most powerful of arguments ad hominem but all such arguments partake of one common defect they are not constant and they are double-edged today they defend scientific knowledge tomorrow they will attack it indeed it so happens that the very belief in the causal law begets a great disquiet and turmoil in the soul which finally produces all the horrors of chaos and madness the certainty that the existing order is immutable is for certain minds synonymous with the certainty that life is nonsensical and absurd probably the disciples of christ had that feeling when the last words of their crucified master reached them from the cross my god my god why hast thou forsaken me and the modern theorists may explain triumphantly that when the law became the instrument of chaos and madness it was ipso facto abolished christ has risen says the disciples of christ i have said that the theorists may triumph but i must confess that i have not found in any of them an open glorification of such an obvious proof of the truth of their teaching of the resurrection of christ they say not a word on the contrary they make every effort to avoid it and pass it by in silence and this circumstance compels us to pause and think a dilemma arises if you grant that the law of causation suffers no exception then your soul will be eternally haunted by the last words of the crucified christ if you do not then you will have no science some assert that it is impossible to live without science without knowledge and that such a life is horror and madness others cannot be reconciled to the thought that the most perfect of men died the death of a murderer what should we do without which thing is it impossible for man to live without scientific knowledge or without the conviction that truth and spiritual perfection are in the last resort the victors of this world and how will the theory of knowledge stand with regard to questions such as these will it still continue its exercise in apologetics or will it at last understand that this is not its real problem and that if it would preserve the right to be called philosophy it will have not to justify and exalt the existing science 
but to examine and direct some science of its own it means above all to put the question is scientific knowledge really perfect or is it perhaps imperfect and should it therefore yield its present honourable place to another science evidently this is the most important question for the theory of knowledge yet this question it never puts it wants to exalt existing science it has been is now and probably will long continue to be apologetics truth and utility mill seeking to prove that all our sciences even the mathematical have an empiric origin brings forward the following consideration if on every occasion that we had to take twice two things some deity slipped one extra thing into our hands we should be convinced that twice two is not four but five and perhaps mill is right perhaps he should not divine what was the matter we are much more concerned to discover what is practically necessary and directly useful to us than to search for truth if a deity with each four things slipped a fifth into our hands we should accept the additional thing and consider it natural intelligible necessary impossible to be otherwise the very uniformity in the sequence of phenomena observed by the empirical philosophers was also slipped into our hands by whom when who dares to ask once the law is established no one is interested in anything any more now we can foretell the future now we can use the things slipped into our hands and the rest cometh of the evil one philosophers and teachers everyone knows that schopenhauer was for many years not only not recognized but not even read his books were used for waste paper it was only towards the end of his life that he had readers and admirers and of course critics for every admirer is at bottom a most merciless and importunate critic he must understand everything make everything agree and of course the master must supply the necessary explanations schopenhauer who did not have the experience of being a master till his old age at first behaved very benevolently to his disciples questions and patiently gave the explanations required but the further one goes into the forest the thicker are the trees the most loyal perplexities of his pupils became more and more importunate until at last the old man lost patience i didn't undertake to explain all the secrets of the universe to everyone who wanted to know them he once exclaimed when a certain pupil persisted in emphasizing the contradictions he had noticed in schopenhauer and really is a master obliged to explain everything in schopenhauer's words we are given an answer not ambiguous a philosopher not only cannot be a teacher he does not want to be one there are teachers in schools in universities they teach arithmetic grammar logic metaphysics the philosopher has quite a different task one which does not in the least resemble teaching truth as a social substance there are many ways real and imaginary of objectively verifying philosophic opinions but they all reduce we know to trial by the law of contradiction 
true every one is aware that no single philosophic doctrine is able to support such a trial so that pending a better future people consider it possible to display a certain tenderness in the examination they are usually satisfied if they come to the conclusion that the philosopher made a genuine attempt to avoid contradictions for instance they forgive spinoza his inconsistency because of his amor intellectualis day kant for his love of morality and his praise of disinterestedness plato for the originality and purity of his idealistic impulses and aristotle for the vastness and universality of his knowledge so that strictly speaking we must confess that we have no real objective method of verifying a philosophical truth and when we criticize other people's systems we judge arbitrarily after all if a philosopher suits us for some reason we do not trouble him with the law of contradiction if he does not we summon him before the court to be judged with the utmost rigor of the law confident beforehand that he will be found guilty on every count but sometimes there arises the desire to verify one's own philosophic convictions to play the farce of objective verification with them to look for contradictions in oneself i do not suppose that even germans are capable of that and yet one desires to know whether he does indeed possess the truth or whether he has only a universal error in his hands what is to be done i think there is a way he should think to himself that it is absolutely impossible for his truth to be binding upon anybody if in spite of this he still refuses to renounce her if the truth can suffer such an ordeal and yet remain the same to him as she was before then it may be supposed that she is worth something for often we appreciate conviction not because it has an intrinsic value but because it commands a high price on the market robinson crusoe probably had a totally different way of thinking to that of a modern writer or professor whose books are exposed to the appreciation of his numerous confreres who can create for him the renown of a wise man and a scholar or utterly ruin his reputation even with the greeks whom we are accustomed to regard as model thinkers opinions had to use the language of economics not so much a demand as an exchange value the greeks had no knowledge of the printing press and no literary reviews they usually took their wisdom out into the marketplace and applied all their efforts to persuade people to acknowledge its value and it is hard to maintain that wisdom which is constantly being offered to people should not adapt itself to people's tastes it is true to say that wisdom became accustomed to value itself to the exact degree to which it could count on people's appreciation in other words it appears that the value of wisdom like that of all other commodities not only with us but with the greeks before us is a social affair the most modern philosophy has given up concealing the fact the teleology of the rationalists who follow fichte as well as the pragmatists who consider themselves the successors of mill is openly based upon the social point of view and speaks of collective creations 
truth which is not good for all and always in the home market of the foreign is not truth perhaps its value is even defined by the quality of labor spent upon it marx might triumph under different flags his theory has found admission into every sphere of contemporary thought there would hardly be found one philosopher who would apply the method of verifying truth which i have proposed and hardly a single modern idea which would stand the test doctrines and deductions if you want to ruin a new idea try to give it the widest possible publicity men will begin to reflect upon it to try it by their daily needs to interpret it to make deductions from it in a word to squeeze it into their own prepared logical apparatus or more likely they will cover it up with the debris of their own habitual and intelligible ideas and it will become as dead as everything that is begotten by logic perhaps this explains the tendency of philosophers to so clothe their thoughts that their form may hinder the approach of the general public to them the majority of philosophic systems are chaotically and obscurely expounded so that not every educated person can understand them it is a pity to kill one's own child and every one does his best to save it from premature death the most dangerous enemies of an idea are deductions from it as though they followed of themselves the idea does not presuppose them they are usually pressed upon it indeed people very often say the idea is quite right but it leads to conclusions which are not at all acceptable again how often has a philosopher to attend the sad spectacle of his pupils deserting all his ideas and feeding only upon the conclusions from them every thinker who has had the misfortune to attract attention while he was yet alive knows by bitter experience what deductions are and yet you will rarely find a philosopher to offer open and courageous resistance to his continuators and still more rarely a philosopher to say outright that his work needs no continuation that it will not bear continuation that it exists only in and for itself that it is self-sufficient if someone said this how would he be answered people could not dispute with him try to dispute with the man who wants neither to dispute nor to demonstrate the only answer is an appeal to the popular verdict to lynch law people are so weak and naive that they will at all costs see a teacher in the usual sense of the word in every philosopher in other words they really want to throw upon him the responsibility for their actions their present their future and their whole fate socrates was not executed for teaching but because the athenians thought he was dangerous to athens and in all ages men have approached truth with this criterion as though they knew beforehand that truth must be of use and able to protect them one of the greatest teachings christianity was also persecuted because it seemed dangerous to the self-appointed guardians or if you will because it was really very dangerous to roman ideals of course neither socrates's death nor the deaths of thousands of the early christians saved the ancient culture and polity from decay but no one has learned anything from the lesson 
people think that these were all accidental mistakes against which no one was secure in ancient times but which will never again recur and therefore they continue to make deductions as they used from every truth and to judge the truth by the deductions they have made and they have their reward although there have been on earth many wise men who knew much that is infinitely more valuable than all the treasures for which men are ready even to sacrifice their lives still wisdom is to us a book with seven seals a hidden hoard upon which we cannot lay our hands many the vast majority are even seriously convinced that philosophy is a most tedious and painful occupation to which are doomed some miserable wretches who enjoy the odious privilege of being called philosophers i believe that even professors of philosophy the more clever of them not seldom share this opinion and suppose that therein lies the ultimate secret of their science revealed to the initiate alone fortunately the position is otherwise it may be that mankind is destined never to change in this respect and a thousand years hence men will care much more about deductions theoretical and practical from the truth than about truth itself but real philosophers men who know what they want and at what they aim will hardly be embarrassed by this they will utter their truths as before without in the least considering what conclusions will be drawn from them by the lovers of logic end of section eleven